Welcome to Deuterocanons. Welcome to Deuterocanons. I'm Justin, and today we're going to do a part two to last week's episode that focused on H.G. Wells as an apostle of humanist globalism. So if you haven't listened to to that episode, you might want to go to that one first and then uh, come back here for, for the continuation. We're going to pivot away from Wells in particular to taking a look at one of his good friends, G.K. Chesterton, because at first glance, no two authors from that period would seem more different than Chesterton and Wells. Chesterton was a Catholic, conservative, monogamous, while Wells, a materialist and atheist, was as infamous for his illicit affairs as he was famous for his novels and lectures. In numerous essays and articles, Wells sparred with Chesterton and his conservatism. In one essay, The Past and the Great State, Wells attributes Chesterton's views to mere hostility to novelty and research. In modern terms, Wells accused Chesterton of refusing to follow the science. Chesterton, for his part, debated right back. He debated Wells's Fabian socialism frequently. He dedicated chapters in multiple books to their philosophical repartee, and even wrote The Everlasting Man in response to Wells's two-volume outline of history. Now, The Everlasting Man is a book that I've read multiple times, and, and I highly recommend it. It's a book that C.S. Lewis credited for baptizing his imagination, so you know it must be good. Now, despite their inimical public discourse, like I mentioned, Wells and Chesterton actually shared warm regard and a lasting friendship. For example, in a letter that Chesterton uh, received from Wells, Wells said, My dear old GKC, if after all my atheology turns out wrong and your theology right, I feel I shall always be able to pass into heaven, if I want to, as a friend of GKC's. Bless you. And Chesterton's reply offered similar humility and consideration that went so far as to commend Wells for, quote, having done a thousand things for men like me in every way from imagination to criticism. Now, despite that friendship, Wells shows up in, for example, a book called Heretics that Chesterton wrote about the worst ideas prevalent in his day, which was the Edwardian period, turn of the century, we're talking mid-1890s, up through his death in the, uh, in the 1930s. Now, despite the fact that they were friends, I wanted to take a look at some of Chesterton's critiques of Wells, and of course, like I mentioned, some of those critiques come in nonfiction, but I find some of the more interesting ones to be fleshed out in some of Chesterton's stories. So that, that's where I'm going to start. Uh, in particular, the Napoleon of Notting Hill. So like Wells, much of Chesterton's fiction functioned as an expression of his worldview and, of, and a view of the impact that the sins of the day might have on the future. As a literary, political, and social critic, Chesterton was at least as skilled as Shaw in uncovering the, the unspoken assumptions implicit in popular rhetoric. His first novel, The Napoleon of Notting Hill, opens with introductory remarks on the art of prophecy. 
in which he argues that humankind has long played a game that he calls, quote, cheat the prophet. The players of this game, all of humankind, listen very carefully, he says, and respectfully to all that the clever men have to say about what is to happen in the next generation, bury them nicely, then go and do something else. But at the dawn of the 20th century, the game had become more difficult because there were, in Chesterton's words, so many prophets and prophecies that it was difficult to elude all of their ingenuities. The characteristic he finds common to these modern prophets and their prognostications is that they took something or other that was certainly going on in their time and then said that it would go on more and more until something extraordinary happened, and very often they added that in some odd place that extraordinary thing had happened and that it showed the signs of the times. The first prophet he singles out is none other than his friend H.G. Wells, who, quote, thought that science would take charge of the future. Wells and other contemporary prophets were alike in taking something they saw going strong and carrying it as far as ever their imagination could stretch. But Chesterton, with characteristically witty analogies, uncovers the absurdity of the idea of limitless positive progress. He says, Just when we see a pig in a litter larger than the other pigs, we know that by an unalterable law of the inscrutable, it will someday be larger than an elephant. Just as we know when we see weeds and dandelions growing more and more thickly in a garden, that they must, in spite of all of our efforts, grow tired than the chimneys and swallow the house from sight, so we know and reverently acknowledge that when any power in human politics has shown for any period of time any considerable activity, it will go on until it reaches to the sky. So take, take the application, of course, to the prophecies and prognostications of climate science and of pandemic science and the numbers that they extrapolate out into the future to prove what measures ought to be taken in the present. And yet we find that so often those models prove wrong. Well, I find G.K. Chesterton to be such a helpful voice to consider because he was calling out that way of thinking over 100 years ago. Chesterton then challenges the social applications of the materialist doctrine of uniformity popular in not just 19th century science, but the science of today, the science of which Wells was a faithful disciple. Although Chesterton admits that some of the prophecies he criticizes may in fact materialize at some point in the future, their apparent fulfillment would have nothing to do with the foresight of any individual modern prophet such as Wells, George Bernard Shaw, Sidney Webb, and the like. Instead, the sheer volume and diversity of prophecies would ensure that some would be bound to happen. In his version of the future, focused on in the Napoleon of Notting Hill, the people had, again, cheated the prophets of the 20th century. And in 1984, forecasting 80 years from its publication, the Napoleon of Notting Hill depicts a London almost exactly what it is now. Humankind remains weak, fallible, finite, absurd, still capable of pulling off elaborate practical jokes. But Chesterton is not offering a picture of what London might actually become in the vein of 
H.G. Wells's Time Machine's dire warnings regarding a distant future preventable only if human societies reject capitalist policies and embrace the socialist dogma. Instead, he satirizes the prophetic revolutionaries like Wells and presents absurdities that their assumptions cannot possibly rule out. Farces against which they can, in fact, make no logical objection. So a note right here about 1984. Of course, the Napoleon of Notting Hill was written and published long before George Orwell's 1984. However, what's interesting is that G.K. Chesterton actually gave Orwell his first writing gig. And I, I believe that Orwell's first article appeared in G.K. Chesterton's weekly reader, which I believe is called uh, the G.K. Weekly or the G.K.C. Weekly or the G.K. Reader, something like that. So you can look that up. Uh, to check it out further. But even though uh, that connection is the case, I don't know that that Orwell borrowed the date 1984 from Chesterton, but it, it's still a really interesting coincidence. So in the Napoleon of Notting Hill, the London that Chesterton depicts in this satirical future has actually lost faith in revolutions because people cannot upset all existing things customs and compromises unless they believe in something outside of them, something positive and divine. And belief in something outside is exactly what England has lost. In its place stands a thing called evolution, which, which dictates that, quote, all theoretic changes have ended in blood and ennui, and if we change, we must change slowly and safely as the animals do. Evolution, according to, Ch to Chesterton's narrator, teaches that nature's revolutions are the only successful ones, and its success proven in that there has been no conservative reaction in favor of tales. The new faith of future England has killed democracy in favor of kingship by lottery rather than heredity. But no one minds. In fact, Chesterton's narrative suggests that logically consistent faith in evolution demands acceptance of whatever has come about by virtue of the fact that it has come about. So when a comic fool named Auberon Quinn is appointed by Lot as the new king, it brings about the purest democracy, which is despotism, and the priorities of social evolution are put to the test. Before Quinn's appointment, he and two acquaintances happen to meet the deposed president of the now-conquered Nicaragua. In their conversation, government clerk James Barker explains the intricacies of the British government with a rationale for choosing king by lottery that seems to foreshadow both postmodernism and deconstructionism. He says, Why should we not choose out of them one as much as another? Barker offers himself as an eloquent apologist for government by chance when he says, Did not half the historical nations trust to the chance of the eldest sons of the eldest sons, and did not half of them get on tolerably well? All hereditary monarchies were a matter of luck. So also are alphabetical monarchies. Yet when government officials arrived to announce Quinn's kingship, after Quinn has just foisted a litany of intentionally nonsens nonsensical jokes on his frustrated companions, Barker shrieks, Ah, oh, not Quinn! In fact, the moment Quinn receives the news, he happens 
to have positioned his head between his own legs and is mooing like a cow. The real joke is that the Joker Quinn is perfectly consistent while Barker is made the fool. Now, I'm not sure if the Marx Brothers had read G.K. Chesterton, but if you actually read The Napoleon of Notting Hill, which I highly recommend, the picture you need to have in your head is of something like the movie Duck Soup by the Marx Brothers, where absolute absurdity reigns, and the absurdity that reigns points out the absurdity of those who think they are in charge. To quote Rush Limbaugh, there's something to pointing out absurdity through absurdity. So when Barker tries to reason with Oberon, the new king trounces his inconsistencies with logical clarity and biting wit. The king plans to transform various functions of state into one roaring old-fashioned pantomime which Barker argues will ruin the country, and accuses him of not caring about anything else but his games. To which King Oberon retorts, Can you tell me in the names of all the gods you don't believe in why I should care for anything else? And then he offers a scathing critique, not of the future, but of the turn of the century's modern prophets. Again, the H.G. Wellses, the George Bernard Shaws, the Sidney Webbs of the world. So he says, quote, Does a man of your intelligence come to me with these damned early Victorian ethics? Did Herbert, Herbert Spencer ever convince you? Did, did he ever convince anybody? Did he ever for one mad moment convince himself that it must be to the interest of the individual to feel a public spirit? Herbert Spencer refrained from theft for the same reason that he refrained from wearing feathers in his hair. Because he was an English gentleman with different tastes. I am an English gentleman with different tastes. He liked philosophy. I like art. He liked writing 10 books books on the nature of human society. I like to see the Lord Chamberlain walking in front of me with a piece of paper pinned to his coattails. It is my humor. Are you indeed answered? By the way, Herbert Spencer was a Victorian scientist and philosopher, the one who coined the term survival of the fittest after he read Darwin's on the origin of species. And in another book that Chesterton wrote called Orthodoxy, Chesterton draws a comparison between Wells and Spencer and says that in his headlong imperialism, Spencer would insist that we had in some way been conquered and annexed by the astronomical universe. And his evil influence can be seen in the most spirited and honorable of later scientific authors, notably in the early romances of Mr. H.G. Wells. Many moralists have in an exaggerated way represented the earth as wicked, but Mr. Wells and his school made the heavens themselves wicked. So again, Herbert Spencer is the guy who came up with the term survival of the fittest. So completing the satiric spirit of the scene, King Oberon then refuses any further serious conversation except in a new language of his own by means of rapid and symbolic movements of the left leg which factor in or, or picture right there the Marx Brothers or picture Monty Python and the Holy Grail or Monty Python's Flying Circus. They were definitely taking a page out of G.K. Chesterton. King Oberon's progressive reforms in England, the choice of his soul, stipulate a revival of middle-age heraldry in London suburbs, which occurs to him as a, just a grand joke when, while strolling through the Notting Hill neighborhood, a small boy stabs him with a toy sword. 
Amused by the boy, he instructs him, Boy, I'm glad you are so stalwart a defender of your old and violet neighborhood of Notting Hill. Look up nightly to that peak, my child, where it lifts itself among the stars, so ancient, so lonely, so unutterably nodding. So long as you are ready to die for the sacred mountain, even if it were ringed with all the armies of Bayswater. In that moment, the delicious satire of a London decked in a blaze of medieval heraldry, delving history and legend for vague, even apocryphal origins of suburbs and boroughs, to revive vestments and coats of arms, halberdiers and provosts, overtakes the king. At the conclusion of a hasty but eloquently tongue-in-cheek speech to the Society for the Recovery of London Antiquities, the king proclaims, I will not enter into the details now, my heart is too full, satirically echoing Wells's confidence that socialism should be universally affirmed despite scant details of implementation. The London Antiquity Society, to which the king delivers his progressive plan then, appears as a Fabian society turned on its ear. And, like Wells, King Oberon's full heart for the promise of London's future replaces any actual need for the specifics of policy. When James Barker again protests, hoping desperately that Oberon will not actually implement London's heraldification, the king is unmoved. In God's name, Oberon, Barker adjures, you don't mean that you are really going to have these city guards and city walls and things. But the king, resolute, replies that he will have them for the very reason that he has modeled them precisely on true Barkerian political principles. Each borough would operate under the same law as the central government, its provost appointed by rotation and lottery. Although public reception of the new laws proves mixed, the architects and apologists of Britain's rotational despotism are left with no philosophical or political recourse but to play along. After ten years of Oberon's running medieval gag, the king's regime arrives at a crisis unforeseen in an age of unbelief. What might happen if someone actually took the joke seriously? When a collection of industrial-minded provosts plans a highway through several neighborhoods, including Notting Hill, a scene unfolds that likely prefigures Frank Capra's famous You Can't Take It With You and W.P. Kinsella's Shoeless Joe, upon which the Field of Dreams is based. The humble everyman takes a principled stand for what Wendell Berry calls a place on earth a home and the ground beneath it, against the conspiring forces of generality and standardization, whether those powers be corporate or governmental, capitalist or socialist, or a hellish collaboration among them all. The enterprising provosts had spent a decade acquiring the necessary property for a new road when the new provost of Notting Hill refuses to sell anything for any price. In the middle of the provost's fractious audience with King Oberon, Adam Wayne, provost of Notting Hill, enters in full heraldry and in perfectly serious chivalry offers his sword to the king. The rest begrudgingly follow the motions of the king's pantomime, but Wayne is in earnest. In the repartee that follows, the king, excessively diverted, surmises that the provosts can't cope with Wayne's chivalrous eloquence and views the walking anachronism as a true artist. But initially, even the king does not suspect that Wayne is entirely serious and asks, 
you do really propose to fight these modern improvers, and that the dentists and small tradesmen and maiden ladies who inhabit Notting Hill will really rally with war hymns to your standard? Wayne resolutely affirms, if they have blood, they will. Still perplexed, the king presses further and discovers that Wayne is the same boy who had stabbed him with a wooden sword ten years prior, the one whom he instructed to be ready to die for the sacred mountain of Notting Hill, the one who had inspired his grand satirical tapestry in the first place. Wayne is a deadly, serious zealot of the king's own making. This is blowback that the king had never anticipated. The battle Wayne promises does happen. The industrial provost muster a force several times larger than Wayne's, but the, but the small army of Notting Hill emerges victorious, and the empire of Notting Hill, no larger than its original borders, lasts 20 years before the armies of North and South Kensington again rise up to overtake the upstart Wayne, and a civil war erupts in the streets of London. In its after aftermath, King Auberon admits to Wayne that the whole business was a joke that went far beyond anything he intended. Wayne, seeing no evil in the jest, likens himself and Auberon to two lobes of a brain, each needing the other, Wayne the fanatic and Auberon the humorist. As the narrative closes, the two went away together into the unknown, which again lands a jab into the ribs of Edwardian-era empiricism and their faith that things are in the nature orderly and that they may be computed, may be calculated upon and foreseen and therefore trust that they can attain systematic knowledge of material things that would be sufficient to enact their utopian designs. Wayne's Revolution offers a profound satirical critique of H.G. Wells's world state and that it presents the inversion of expectations possible even in an intentional farce. If a practical joke on the city of London can turn into a bloodbath, then certainly the comprehensive nature of Wells's envisioned global plan is bound to encounter a nearly infinite number of unforeseen difficulties. Chesterton's crafting of Auberon's heraldic pantomime is still all the more brilliant for its lampooning of the only thing that the socialist state, according to Wells, would leave individual citizens and their standardized municipalities. That one thing is community pride. The narrative suggests that if the prophets cannot account for the potential individuality of the individual, then it cannot be trusted to govern and form into one sterile unit the masses of individuals that form themselves into abundantly diverse societies. So again, this is a look at the Napoleon of Notting Hill by G.K. Chesterton, which is a, a book focused on turning Chesterton's critique of H.G. Wells and other modern and postmodern prophets, turning, turning those prophecies on their ear to show that they're really not as prophetic as they think because they can't account for all the details. And if they can't account for all the details, then maybe all of their endless social planning and their, their, their plans for, for revolution and endless improvement might turn out to become a nightmare beyond all of their wildest imaginations. So join us next time on Deuterocanons 
when we take a look more specifically at their friendship and some later critiques that Chesterton had for Wells and how, at the end of his life, H.G. Wells ended up changing his tune. Very ironically. Until next time, conform no longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will.